Hello, and welcome to the Victory Point Ministries podcast. My name is Brendan. I'm one of the pastors at Victory Point. And yesterday, after I preached my sermon, uh, we realized that there were some technical difficulties that prevented the message from being recorded. So I thought that I would jump on and record uh, a version of the message for those of you who were not able to be there on Sunday, or if you wanted to uh, tune back in and, and get a you know another listen, wanted to make sure that that was available. So yesterday, we continued our series on prayer called Devoted to Prayer, and um, and we really are doing this series because uh, this is one of the key aspects of the church. Is that um, it says in Acts two forty two that the apostles were. Uh, the, the people who gathered were de- after Pentecost were devoting themselves to prayer. Um, Acts 2.42 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And so uh, prayer is, is really a, a foundational element of what it means to be the church. Are we the kind of people who pray? And last week, uh, Matt preached a sermon about uh, praying persistently, meaning we'd, we'd never give up praying um, because we always bring things before God and, uh, and, and we never quit. And if we never quit, um, or in, in other words, as it says elsewhere in Scripture, uh, pray without ceasing, uh, prayer becomes a lifestyle um, in, this, in the Psalms. Uh, you know, God says that um, before a word is on our tongues, He knows it completely. Meaning, God knows what we are thinking before we even say it. And if uh, prayer is communication with God, and if God knows what we're thinking, then uh, prayer is ongoing. It's happening all the time. Our life is prayer. Our life is one of prayer. And so why is it important, if our life is prayer, to, devor- to devote ourselves to prayer? If it's already going on, why is it important that we devote ourselves to prayer? Well, um, I want to look at a parable that Jesus uh, gave uh, in Luke, Luke 18. And this parable helps kind of... Uh, show us the importance of prayer. One one aspect for why why prayer is so important. So you can look uh, look up in Luke 18 verse 9 through 14. If you can open your Bible, um, you can see that uh, you can read along, and I'll read it out loud. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So God, thank you for this parable. I pray that you'd use uh, these words to strike us to the heart, to uh, produce good fruit in us, to form the character of Christ in us, that we look more and more like you. We come to you humbly asking for your wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. A Pharisee and a tax collector are both heading up to the Temple Mount to pray. 
And first of all, we have the Pharisee. And the Pharisee is a religious leader. And generally speaking, Pharisees were actually um, held in high respect, despite our current kind of um, uh, prototype of a Pharisee. Pharisees were really uh, well-respected, and they wanted the best for Jerusalem. Uh, they wanted the best for all of Israel, who was oppressed by the Roman Empire during this time. They were being occupied by the Roman Empire. And the Pharisees wanted freedom for God's people, and they sought religious revival as the, um, the catalyzer of that uh, freedom from oppression, that once, Jude, uh, once the Jews would uh, exemplify the righteousness of God, God would deliver them from their oppressors. And so they really sought to make the law uh, attainable. They, they kind of boiled the law down into its most fundamental elements and tried to make them applicable to everyday life. And so here you have this Pharisee on top of uh, the Temple Mount seeking to teach God's people um, what it looks like by example to follow the law in his prayer. He's standing as an example in front of everybody, which at first does not seem so bad, except for the fact that he's really positioning himself in a place of arrogance. And that's really the problem in this text is the arrogance of the Pharisee. He's standing alone above as an example, and he's he's got his head up presumably, and he's looking to the sky and maybe even to people who are looking onto him and saying, God, thank you that I am not a bad person. Thank you that I'm a good person. And what he's doing really here is, is lying to God about himself. He's lying to God about himself because uh, it's not true. It's not true that he is fundamentally a good person or that, you know, because of his goodness, his own goodness, that God is listening to his prayers. In fact, a couple of verses later, in verse 19 of the same chapter, Jesus is talking to the rich young ruler, and he says, Why do you call me good? Jesus says, No one is good but God alone. Romans 3, verse 20 says, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. The Pharisee is trying to look good, self-righteous. He's trying to become like one who is unclean. Or sorry, he's become, trying to become one who is clean. And yet, uh, like it says in Isaiah 64, 6, um, he's actually, because he's trying to be good by his own righteousness, because he's trying to appear righteous, he's actually becoming like one who is unclean. And, um, and Isaiah says that kind of righteousness is more like filthy rags. So what does this have to teach us about prayer. Arrogance stands in the way of our prayer life. Arrogance is this um, posture of looking down on others and think, thinking we're better than others. And as we listen to this uh, parable, we have to realize that um, you know Jesus is asking us to take a good look at ourselves, to look at ourselves and think, well, I am, I am like that Pharisee. On Friday, this past week, Kanye West came out with a new album called Jesus is King. Kanye West has sold um, upwards of 140 million albums. He's got about 21 Grammys, I think. And he's a very well-known uh, hip-hop rap artist. Uh, but he's also a figure known for his controversy 
both in the public sphere and the private sphere. He is, um, he's made a lot of enemies and made a lot of people uncomfortable. He's, um, he's not necessarily set a good example of morals and ethics in his own life. And yet here he's coming out on Friday with an album called Jesus is King. I have to be honest, my first response to this was, no way. There is no way that Kanye West is sincere. He has to have some ulterior motive, or, or maybe this is just a passing phase. I can't take him um, seriously when he comes out with an album called Jesus King. It makes me suspicious. But I wonder if that has more to say about me and how I am a lot like the Pharisee, the Pharisee who's looking at the tax collector and probably thinking, the tax collector? Really the mouthpiece of Rome, the, the uh, a traitor? Up on this hill praying to God, what a hypocrite. He doesn't, he doesn't, he can't be sincere. He's just trying to give lip service to God. Well, that's how I felt about Kanye West. And so I, um, I made sure to, I, I, I wanted to listen to the album just to see what this is all about. And um, I'm going to give you some of the lyrics in this album. First of all, from front to back. Um, the, the first song says, uh, every hour, every minute, every second, we need you. And it says, sing to the power of the Lord comes down. At the end, it says, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. From the front to back, the whole album is devoted to Jesus. And in the middle, there's a song called Hands On. It goes like this. this these words uh, felt like they were written directly to me. If they only see the wrongs, never listen to the songs. Just to listen is a fight. But you booked me for the fight. It's so hard to get along if they only see the slight. From the love of religion, what have you been hearing from the Christians? They'll be the first one to judge me. Make it seem like nobody loves me. I deserve all the criticism you got. If that's all the love you have, that's all you got. To sing of change, you think I'm joking. To praise his name, you ask what I'm smoking. Yes, I understand your reluctancy, but I have a request you see. Don't throw me up. Lay your hands on me. Please pray for me. That's Kanye West and Hands On. I began to realize that I look down on others. I look down on others all the time. It's not just when I'm listening to Kanye West album. So this week, I've been spending some time thinking about all the ways that I look down on others. And I thought I'd let you know what I've been reflecting on. And maybe you could add to this list for yourself. Driving. I look down on people when I'm driving. I can't see their faces. I just assume that they're ignorant and don't know what they're doing, um, especially when we're driving in the rain and I'm uncomfortable with other cars and think that other people don't know what they're doing. So I look down on people. Social media, which is basically designed for arrogance. I look down on others on social media. When I give unsolicited advice, like I know better than other people. Holding a grudge, holding a grudge as if the other person deserves, uh, deserves to be held a grudge against, uh, like I'm right, holding out like I'm right. Making fatalistic predictions, like if this happens, then this will definitely happen, um, as if I am God. And then also the, the flip side of that coin, that I told you so, I told you that was going to happen, um, like I'm playing God. Objectifying, labeling, and judging other people, diminishing them, um, not seeing them for uh, who they really are, instead of seeing the label that they are. 
uh, assuming the worst about people or situations, um, shortcutting others' pain. So assuming the worst is kind of like pessimism, and shortcutting pain is like optimism. Uh, that's that's a way that I look down on other people and don't let them be themselves, but um, try to put them down. Interrupting others as if I know um, what to say or interjecting on what other people are saying as if what they have to say is not as important as what I have to say. Uh, being on time or being late. Being on time is like, like if I'm on time and other people are late, then I feel really great about myself and think I'm better than other people. But if I'm late and other people are on time, I shrug it off and think that I'm exceptional. Um, I can be late because I'm special and other people are on time because they had nothing better to do. Um, not confessing to God, uh, which is kind of like what the Pharisee does, comes before God without regard to his own sin, uh, thinking that he's perfect, like he's coming to God as an equal. Uh, holding out on a due apology, kind of like holding a grudge, but um, in, instead of realizing that I have something to apologize, I think that I am perfect and I don't have anything to apologize for and other people need to apologize. Um, politicism, tribalism, nationalism, thinking that I'm just categorically better than other people or part of a group of people that's better than other people. Um, entitlement, thinking that I deserve praise, like I deserve special treatment. Uh, religious behavior, like giving or reading or praying uh, or even preaching for me, um, it's a temptation. How do I make sure that I'm um, treating the congregation like um, I'm not better than them. And also, uh, my own personal spiritual practices, uh, there's a temptation to believe that it's because of my spiritual practices that I receive the spiritual blessings that I do. Um, and this one is probably the sneakiest one, especially in West Michigan, is helping others but refusing help. And it's something I think we we do commonly is we we want to help other people and uh, serve other people, which is a good thing to do. It's a Christ-like thing to do. But then when we refuse help for ourselves, when we, we turn ourselves into the Savior, that we are here to help everyone else and no one can help us. Um, and what we're saying is that we are perfect. What we're trying to do is to be humble. But the problem is, and this is a trap we fall into with this parable as a whole, is that whenever we try to be humble, we start to look at our own humility as the good thing that we're doing, our own credit. And we actually become more like the Pharisee. We start to say, thank God I'm not like that Pharisee. You see how that trap plays into us? We have ignorance of our own sin, our own arrogance, our own imperfections. Um, a tool that's really helped me with this is the Enneagram. If you don't know what the Enneagram is, I encourage you to um, look it up. Um, uh, just go to any Enneagram website and start exploring um, and see how the Enneagram helps you uncover um, your own sin patterns, the ways that you might have a, a blind eye to your own sin and shortcomings and challenges. Most personality profiling tests um, will you know, you'll get kind of excited about which, finding out which type you are. The Enneagram, when you find out which type you are, um, cannot be very exciting sometimes. It can feel like, um, like looking into the darkest parts of yourself. And that's a, takes a lot of courage, but it's really revealing. It helps us come clean before God.
But that's, uh, if, if you are listening to this and you're interested in, in learning more about the Enneagram, we're having a workshop on uh, March 6th through 7th. You can register for that on our website um, under events. But anyway, the, um, we are so ignorant to our own sin. The Enneagram helps us uncover that ignorance. Um, and being ignorant of our sin is so prideful and arrogant to think that we are perfect. We're telling a lie to God about ourselves that is not true. And um, some would say that pride is the chief sin, that arrogance is the chief sin, that when Adam and Eve sinned, it was out of pride and arrogance, which um, is true, is is kind of a the head sin. But um, I was reading Carl Barth this week, who was talking about how the ultimate sin is not so much pride, but unbelief. It's unbelief. What that means is what Adam and Eve really struggled with is not so much their own arrogance, which is true, but more what they struggled with was unbelief that God was really as good as he says he was. If God was really as good as he says he was, um, they, wouldn't have to, they wouldn't have to be perfect in order for him to love them. They wouldn't have to be perfect in order to receive love. That, that being prideful is a way that we throw God's grace back in his face. Um, Larry Warner um, says this, Seeking to make yourself worthy is an affront to God's free and gracious gift of justification. I'll say that again. Seeking to make yourself worthy is an affront to God's free and gracious gift of justification. That's exactly what was going on with the, tax collect- with the Pharisee. The Pharisee believed that he was better than other people and that because he was better, he was um, somehow uh, gaining more favor with God. And that's actually uh, the opposite is true. The more we seek to make ourselves worthy, to be uh, righteous people on our own, uh, self-righteous people, the more that's an affront, an offense to God's free and gracious gift of justification. So you have the tax collector in verse 13 and 14, standing at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. God, have mercy on me. The tax collector, as bad as he is, is the one who receives God's mercy that knows he needs it. Tax collectors were foreigners. They were, they were agents of Rome who would collect taxes and then take off um, even more. You, they would collect more than the taxes do in order to fill their pockets and become wealthy as a result. And they became rich from dishonesty. So there was reasons for people to hate them. There was reasons for them to be despised. And there were real reasons for them to not have favor with God. And yet this tax collector is justified by Jesus because he is the one who recognizes his sin and receives the mercy for it. So this word justification um, is, is a theological term, and I want to read a verse from Ephesians, uh, a few verses from Ephesians that kind of explain what justification really is, what our salvation really means. Ephesians says this, As for you, sorry, this is Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 9. 
As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom uh, of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we are dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Jesus Christ. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. This passage in Ephesians really outlines two fundamental um, concepts that we need to understand as Christians. The first is forgiveness. The fact that God has seen our sin and has dealt with it finally through Jesus Christ, that through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, he has chosen to forget all of our sins, to forgive all of our sins, not to just cover them up, or shove them under the rug, but totally wipe them away off the record, erase the hard drive, uh, delete the memory, uh, completely erase it. God has forgotten all of your sins. Do you believe that? Or are you acting as one who has something to hide from God? The second thing that Ephesians talks about is not just forgiveness, but justification. That's that part where it says, we have been seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. That is, we have become the righteousness of God. God showers us with love and righteousness and holiness, and we stand unashamed before God with no pretense, and that means we have no arrogance. We have no need for it. We have no need to pretend that we're better than we are because we've already been seated with God in the heavenly realms. So there's no need for self-righteousness. It's not our righteousness to begin with. It's not that that gives us love. What? What, uh, where God's love comes from is His mercy and grace on sinners who He's forgiven, not on perfect people. We are not perfect. Only God is. And God justifies the humble. The tax collector understands this. I have to wonder if we understand this with all of our arrogance, all of my arrogance. God resists arrogance. He opposes the proud. And arrogance not only poisons our prayer life, but it is extremely destructive to others. Um, I think one of the most uh, striking images of this for me in the past year has been um, the death of my Uncle Dale. Uncle Dale was a pastor um, in, uh, at a church, and he had just announced his retirement last year, 11 months ago. And, um, and then he preached a sermon that Sunday morning. And then that night he was out for a walk um, by himself and uh, there was a drunk driver. I can't think of anything more arrogant than someone driving drunk. And there was a drunk driver. Um, reportedly she was texting at the same time. Her name was Emily Bales. And she was driving in a pickup truck and struck my uncle and killed him immediately. And she fled the scene and then came back to the scene and then fled again. And um, 
and she was charged. She was arrested and charged, and uh, she pleaded not guilty back in January. And for the last however many months since January, she has been, um, we have, we've been awaiting her sentencing trial. And uh, two Fridays ago, she, uh, my aunt, the widow of my uncle, my aunt invited her to come and meet with her in the church that my uncle used to pastor. And I want to read to you the account of this interaction that my aunt uh, wrote and sent to me. And it, I, want, I want to read this because it says to me so much about humility, about the resistance to grab a hold of pride, which is poison, arrogance, um, which um, not only destroys other people in our relationship with God, but arrogance that keeps us, destroys ourselves, keeps us bitter, and um, uh, holds forgiveness away from people who need it and ourselves who need it. Um, and so here's the interaction that she sent me. Emily and parents walked up to the church foyer. Pop-Up and I were standing there. Pop-Up is the name of our grandfather. That's my aunt's dad, Pop-Up. Emily came in first and I went up to her. She reached out her hand and I took it in both of my hands and said, Emily, I'm so glad you were willing to meet. She said, I'm glad you would meet with me. She took her parents' hands. I shook her parents' hands, Julie and Jack, and said again, I'm so glad you were willing to meet. I introduced my dad. I escorted them to a rectangle table and they sat together across from us. I started the time. I looked at Emily a lot directly across from the table. I said, I am glad you came today. I knew in January that I hoped to meet with you since the accident, the horrible accident 11 months ago. The parents agreed, yes, it was an accident. And I and Pop-Pop said, accidents happen to all of us. I then, took, I then looked at Emily and said, I know that you did not mean for this to happen. She cried and said, I'm so devastated for what happened to you. I'm so deeply sorry, so sorry, and I mean that word deeper than I can mean. I'm sorry this happened. I took her hand again and said, I forgive you. My boys forgive you. My family forgives you. Pop-Pop said, I forgive you, and my big family forgives you. Emily cried hard, as did her parents and I. I said then, I wanted to tell you a little bit about Dale, if you want to know. He always wanted to be the best dad ever, ever since we planned to have a family. He grew up in a home with parents who didn't know how to say verbally their love or hug Dale. So Dale decided to be there for our boys, for their events, to take them hiking and to do fun things. My 34-year-old son, Tim, and my Daniel, 38, and Andrew, 40 years old, each had good years of Dale's love and comfort and care. They have memories, good memories of him to comfort them. Have you had special time with your parents? Emily said she did. And Pop-Up asked her if she had a sibling. She said no. And he said, so you are the special princess. Her parents said yes. I asked what special thing they did as a family, and they said they surfed. Her dad had taught her. And they hiked lots of places, like... Uh, like in Yosemite. Pop-up said, that is where Dale was a preacher at the chapel in the valley. I said, we had three years there, hiking all the hikes, backpacking lots of places there and elsewhere. 
I then took Emily's hand and said I wanted to share how I make it moment by moment and day by day and how I can get out of bed each day is because of God's comfort and love and promises. I wanted her to know God's comfort and deep love for her. I knew from the beginning 11 months ago that Dale would want me to tell her about our family's forgiveness and promise to pray for her as she goes on. I said Dale had always had our boys tell them they were sorry when they hurt each other or did wrong things. I said he also preached here at Morro Bay for 24 years about forgiveness and giving it to each other because of God's forgiveness for the wrong we do each day. I knew Dale would want me to forgive to give that forgiveness to you. She cried. Her mom said, we are thankful for you saying that. I showed them a picture of my family in Yosemite. I then offered to be her pen pal if she would like that. She said she would like that. I told her that God's promises was how I made it through times of my own panic attacks I used to have. I would pray, Jesus, help me, and then say a promise of God out loud, which would help. Emily said she has suffered from depression since high school days and since the accident has had PTSD. Pop-up said, would it be okay if I pray for you? She said, yes. He then prayed, God, we pray for Emily and for her to know your love and comfort and your protection for the future. We pray for her to come to trust in your love. I prayed then for her parents as they look to this next year and that they know God's love and protection over their daughter and for his comfort. I told Julie, I have printed out some of God's promises, a one-page sheet. And what if when it's hard from PTSD at night, Julie, you could say these promises to Emily. Julie took the sheet and said she would. We stood. I hugged Emily hard. She said, I'm so sorry. I said, God loves you so much and he wants to comfort you. I said, when it's hard, say, Jesus help me and he will answer. I hugged both her parents. I thanked them for meeting us and they thanked us too. <clears throat> so my Aunt Emily could have looked down on Emily, on the woman who had killed her husband. Instead, she shared how much grace she had received and prayed for her and forgave her. And also Emily, Emily Bales didn't have to meet with my aunt. She could have blown her off, but she did meet, and she received forgiveness when she came. Three days after this meeting, this last Monday, a week ago from when I'm recording this, um, a 25-year-old, Emily Bales, pleaded no contest to her charges. She was sentenced to six years in prison, and I hope my, they, my aunt and her get to be pen pals. Why do we need to be do devoted to prayer? What's the point? Because only God is perfect and we are so prone to arrogance. We are so prone to thinking that we are perfect and that it's because of our good deeds or perfection that we have any merit, that we have any blessing, that we have any salvation from God, that God hears our prayers. But God doesn't hear our prayers because we're perfect. God hears our prayers because He is perfect. And in prayer, we can drop our arrogance and we can accept that we are not perfect. And only then can we receive God's perfect love and grace. That is justification. 
The only way we can be justified before God is by accepting the fact that we are like the Pharisee, arrogant, proud, self-righteous. So as this uh, message concludes, I want to read to you my, uh, my uncle Dale's favorite verse, which is 2 Corinthians 3.18. I was actually, I found out about this because um, he preached that morning that he died. And um, one of the verses he preached from, he said, was his favorite life verse. And it goes like this. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That's 2 Corinthians 3.18. And I think about him now getting to contemplate the Lord's glory face to face in heaven. And he's been transformed into the image of God with ever increasing glory. It comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It does not come from himself. And I think it's a, it's a little bit of a trap to think that we could somehow uh, try to be as humble as we could. In seeking to be humble, um, that we would somehow attain the kind of righteousness God wants for us. I don't think it's through trying to be humble. I think it's through recognizing that we're not humble. And then looking to the Lord, contemplating the Lord's glory, looking to Him, and allowing Him to transform us into His image. So as... Um, as you head out, I want to leave you with a prayer that you could uh, maybe pray along with me. I can, if you allow me to pray it for you. It's a prayer of confession. As we uh, just close, I'll, I'll read this, and um, hopefully this can be a prayer that you um, can pray throughout the day. God of love, in the wrong we have done and in the good we have not done, have mercy on us. We have sinned in ignorance. We have sinned in weakness. We have sinned on purpose. Have mercy on us. For self-righteousness that will not compromise, and for the way we look down on others, have mercy on us. We repent and turn to you. Forgive us and renew our lives through Jesus Christ. Amen. Doesn't it feel good to come before God not having to have everything all together? And just be honest with Him about who you are what you've done, what you haven't done, and realize it's okay. We've been completely justified. So um, maybe that prayer is helpful to you. I also want to leave you with another, what's called a breath prayer. A breath prayer is something you can memorize and say over and over again. It goes like this. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Go in peace.